0: Aon becomes the latest financial firm to cut ties with the Trump organization. And it's time to check in with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about data and news from the local housing market.
1: The loop, of course, is one point on a very large map of the region. But if there are 24 months of inventory in the loop, then somewhere there's a lot less than 1.8 months of inventory. I'm sure I'll see some places that have less than a month's inventory, and that's going to be remarkable.
0: I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Thursday, January 14th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com dailygist Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi there, and welcome to Cranes Daily Just Live, brought to you by Win Trust. Back here with Cranes residential real estate reporter, Dennis Ratkin. Hello, happy new year. It's been a minute. Amy, how are you? It has
1: been a while, hasn't it? I'm glad we're back together.
0: I know. Glad to be back in the groove of things in the new year. Well, we've got a whole lot of stuff to talk about, so we better get going. Let's start with the story that you wrote recently about how the hot housing market is leading the economic recovery. I think that's news that a lot of people want to hear. Tell me about it.
1: It is. And actually, I heard that news with a lot of people. I was at—I went to two real estate forecasting events last week. The Chicago Association of Realtors has one. And then the next day, uh, the Main Street Organization of Realtors, which is the Suburban Group, has one. Um, between them, that's about 34,000 members. And there were two economists who spoke. Uh, Danielle Hale from Realtor.com spoke at the Chicago event. And Ted Jones, uh, who's a Uh, the chief economist for a title company in Texas, but formerly with Texas A&M was the economist who spoke to the suburban group. Both of them talked about how um, housing has been so robust. Of course, you and I have been talking about the housing market specifically in Chicago, in the Chicago area, but we have sort of gotten into how this is sort of a national phenomenon. These two were talking about it and they were saying uh, what Ted Jones from Texas said is without housing, we wouldn't have the recovery we have today even though of course our economy is far from fully recovered it's better than it would be if housing weren't doing so well and a lot of people thought that uh, at, at the beginning as we were discussing uh, not a year ago now but about 10 months ago in march april you and i were talking about how people thought you know a crash was going to come in housing as well while a crash did come for various reasons in restaurants and hospitality and tourism and many other industries, housing has remained uh, or actually became very hot. Uh, that's in part because of uh, the need to trade up, right? If it, I, I should say it's been very hot among those people who have remained employed. Um, of course, there are millions of people who are either out of work or took massive income losses. And for them, just holding on to the housing they have is has been the project of the year. But for those uh, who have remained employed and whose in- incomes weren't impacted, there's been a lot of trading up to a home that is more suited to what I need in COVID. We both need offices. Our kids need a place to, to um, school at home. But more important, both of them talked about, is this incredible drop in interest rates. I could dream of moving to a bigger space because of COVID, but I could only make it happen because interest rates have gone so low.
0: Yeah, kind of related to that, you've also recently written about uh, the inventory, about how the the pickings are kind of slim right now, uh, perhaps the most it has been in about 13 years.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so we started the year with 1.8 months of inventory in the Chicago market. That means there were enough homes on the market to fuel 1.8 months of sales at the current pace. Healthy, usually you think of four to six months inventory as healthy. And one thing I said in the story that I wanna say here as well is um, uh, while, the end of, while winter is usually a downtime and inventory is at its lowest, that 1.8 is uh, very low compared to what we've had uh, in the previous seven ends of years we were over three months or four months inventory. So this 1.8 is not only the lowest in 13 years, but the lowest during a low time. Um, And what that means, that's partly because so many people have been buying, or that's primarily because so many people have been buying. But what it means is as we go into 2021, um, we may see prices start to rise even more unless more homes come on the market. And one of the things these uh, economists were talking about is more homes may come on the market. The inventory problem may start to solve because um, we're going to have more certainty. The vaccine, we believe, will start to make people more comfortable with what's going to happen in the near future for this country. A change of presidential administrations may make people feel that there's more stability. Um, And so a a feeling of of certitude may make people who either didn't list the house because they didn't want sick people, they didn't want the possibility of sick people coming through the house, or didn't list the house because they didn't know where they were going to go. Am I going to move from Chicago to some city where I can work remotely in Michigan or Indiana? Am I just going to go ahead and go all the way to California, Florida, whatever it is? Um, Or am I just going to move within the town or neighborhood I'm in? I didn't really know yet what the impact was going to be on my life. Now that things look a little more certain, maybe I'll get my home on the market. So that will, that may uh, sort of ease up some of this inventory issue. And interest rates, we ought to mention, uh, though they've gone up again this week, they're so low, these are some numbers that I got from uh, uh, Danielle Hale's presentation. A year ago, December 2019, median asking price in the Chicago area was $299,000. It went up by nearly 28,000. The median asking price went up by nearly 28,000 in the course of 2020 to 327,000. Yet, according to Danielle Hale, you could buy that $327,000 house for a lower monthly payment at the end of uh, 2020 than you could buy the $299,000 house at the end of 2019. Because interest rates have come down so much, a full percentage point, which is really about twenty-five percent, because they were in the fours now, or they were just below four now, they're just below three. Um, that makes a huge difference in affordability, and that's one of the reasons our, our prices have continued going up. Will they? Will that mitigate a little bit by greater inventory? Those two are sort of intertwined factors, and we're going to have to watch that going forward. Um, let me just give you one caveat. Her The monthly payment figure she used is for principal and interest. It doesn't include taxes and fees and other costs. But but generally, you could afford a $327,000 house at the end of 2020 for less than you would have spent for a $299,000 house a year earlier.
0: At the end of December, you're saying there were enough homes on the market to fuel just 1.8 months of sales. And you've said mm-hmm. four to six months is is considered healthy. And yet, is that minus downtown or is that... It's so booming in other places that it kind of cancels out what's happening in downtown.
1: No, that that's actually a really good point. And I was in such a rush to get to the uh, uh, interest rate part of the story that I, I skipped right over that. But you're right. Uh, 1.8 months, that 1.8 month figure is for our entire metro area. So what that does is it papers over the fact that there is about 24 months of inventory in the loop. Uh, of condos unsold. So if you think about that, the loop, of course, is one point on a very large map of the region. But if there are 24 months of inventory in the loop, then somewhere there's a lot less than 1.8 months of inventory. I don't have figures today to tell you where those are, but there is data coming out, uh, I think Monday, where I will see, I'm sure I'll see some places that have like less than a month's inventory. And that's going to be remarkable yeah um, so that's the answer to your question is no it that's including everything as including the 24 months of inventory that the loop has and and big figures in neighborhoods uh, adjacent to the loop.
0: I'll be really interested to see what what are those areas that are kind of making up for the for the loop inventory that have such, you know, tiny inventory. That's going to be really interesting to see that data when you have it. When we're looking at at home values here versus the national, I think that's another kind of piece to bring into this and, and take a look at. So how are we comparing? I feel like Chicago's always kind of done its own thing and marched to its own drum with how we compare to what's happening in other cities. But what does it look like right now?
1: Well, I was I was surprised in in two ways when the last Case Shiller data came out right at the end of December, right before the new year. Um, that covers October, and as you know, I cover October prices in November from local data, and then in December from the national data. It obviously just takes them longer because they're covering the whole uh, the whole country. And um, what came out in December was that in October. Uh, Chicago prices were up. Chicago home values were up 6.3 percent. Um, that was the highest we've had since mid 2014. Uh, the highest month monthly increase year uh, we've recorded in all that time. That was pretty amazing. Um, but we were still near the bottom of the list of 19 cities because others have. While we have rebounded dramatically uh others rebounded more the seattles and, and los angeleses of the world rebounded more now one thing i want to say is uh they started rebounding they, they didn't have the the um tight shutdowns that we had in many cases so they started rebounding a little before we did and november was really our like fiery month so the next time we see k-shiller data which would be the end of january We may see something higher than 6.3. And we may, for the first time in a very long time, move up that list of 19 cities. It used to be 20, but they don't have data for Detroit during the pandemic. They haven't been covering Detroit. So their list is 19 cities. We've been at 18, 19, 20 for a few years, and we may work our way up in November. I don't know, but I think we might work our way up that list in November.
0: Very interesting that I'll be curious to see what that data, you know, because Case Shiller, as you've mentioned many times, it's, it's always a few months out. Yeah. It'll be interesting to kind of look at Case Shiller's numbers finishing out the year. I mean, you and I've been saying that since March, right? That we couldn't wait till we have all the data from this year to really kind of make sense of the full story of what happened in 2020 in the, in the real estate realm.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I want to shift to some other stories and then we've got a lot of houses to talk about. Um, I want to talk about the uh, the At Properties agent who recently lost her job. Tell me about her.
1: Her name is Libby Andrews. She worked for At Properties. She was part-time for At Properties. And she was at that uh, Trump riot in the Capitol last week. She posted on social media that she had, quote, stormed the Capitol. Uh, and she posted pictures like this of herself actually showing the architecture of the Capitol building. She posted these on the day of the, the riot. By the next morning, At Properties had had, they never gave an exact figure, but they had said they had an overwhelming number of complaints from people on social media who were saying, you can't let this woman work for you if she has committed these crimes. So uh, At Properties basically cut her off with a tweet that morning, um, the morning after the riot and I managed to reach her. And I actually, it turns out I called right in time because she was in an Uber in Washington on her way to her flight. So if I hadn't gotten her and she'd gotten on the plane, I wouldn't have gotten her. But her version of the story was, and of course, I wasn't at the Capitol. I don't know. Her version of the story was that she, one, was never inside the Capitol, two, didn't see any damage being done or any violence, and three, was completely on the other side of the building where people weren't even going in. Um, So according to her, she knew nothing about the criminal activity that happened. Um, She was at a rally, she said, to support my president. um, She does believe that there were irregularities in the election, and she was there to interrupt the Electoral College, though she did no actual physical interruption inside the building, according to her so at properties has cut her off. I should say by the end of that day, she had an offer from another real estate agency in Chicago. And we said that in our story, um, she's one of, as we know, many people around the country and in the Chicago area who've uh, been fired or in some other way, disciplined for their activities at the Capitol. And that's the story. I, yeah. you know, I, according to her at properties, didn't try to reach her, just tweeted that she was gone. And according to her, she didn't even know there was any damage being done. So
0: she was fired by tweet.
1: She was essentially fired by tweet. Yeah. And of course, this is the era for that. The president has done the same thing.
0: And and so just to be clear, her position is that she was there from a distance an observer as a protester, but wasn't part of the insurrection actions. But did you say she had posted architecture on her social media? So she...
1: I think she used the term storm the Capitol. She, there was a picture of a champagne glass and she said something something along the lines of enjoying some champagne after storming the Capitol. And so the question is, did she actually, so some people read that as she was one of the people who broke in to the building. Yeah, um, She says that she was not. The phrase storm the Capitol could also apply to being outside. And when I said she pictures of architecture, the pictures aren't only of her and other Trump supporters. There also are in the background. There are pictures uh, that are identifiably the U.S. Capitol. Um, She was up on the steps on one side. And some people on Twitter have, you know, you and I as reporters have different standards for what we can say is factual because we have to actually be sure we've confirmed it. Some people on Twitter were saying, oh, yeah, th- no, she's wrong. This is the door people went in through. I compared photos and that sort of thing. I do not know. Uh, I don't know anything other than what she told me, which is that she was on the wrong
0: side. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's been interesting to track from just a business perspective, the executives and and employees that have been held accountable and also businesses that are cutting ties with the Trump organization. I think that's uh yeah. that's very, been very interesting to see and I'm sure there's going to be more of that. Let's
1: go back to one thing. She yeah. did get a job offer that very same day from another real estate agency. Right. There is uh it's called Gold Coast Exclusives. They um felt that what she had done was fine. Mm-hmm. We okay. should you know, if we're telling the whole story, we yeah. should include that.
0: Yeah, certainly. Certainly. I I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to on the other side of this whenever that is, looking at all of that and all of the fallout from those events will be will yeah. be compelling for sure. All right, let's shift gears and talk about some houses. There's a bunch of them. In fact, this is like a pared down list, Dennis. There's several that is not even we we won't even get to today because there's so many that are fancy that I want to talk about. Okay.
1: Well, like um, I said, people keep buying and selling houses. This I, is so this is it. We cover the data and then here are some many, many individual examples.
0: Okay. Well, let's start with the the Lincoln Park mansion that is becoming a pair of condos that at some point was in the hands of a Titanic survivor.
1: Yeah, it was actually built for, in a technical sense, it was built for one Titanic survivor, but really for four, a mother and her three children. Uh, Emily Ryerson was, she married into the Ryerson-Steele family. She and her husband and three of their children um, went to Europe in 1912 in, uh, on a European tour. Their oldest son was back here in the United States. He dies in a car accident. They all look for the fastest way back to this country, and it's the Titanic. And so they board the Titanic. The father dies in the the sinking of the Titanic. The mother and three kids survive. They come back to Chicago, and five years later, she completes this mansion um, overlooking Lincoln Park, overlooking the park, Lincoln Park, on the street, Lakeview. Um, and it's it's a, it was a beautiful mansion. It's a really interesting sort of a construction that has some architectural history extending up Lakeview uh, behind this and attached to this are several very beautiful Georgian style townhouses. These were designed by David Adler and Henry Dangler to be sort of an arts community. If you can look at a house this size and think, this was going to be an arts community, but the, the townhouses were not quite as mammoth as this. Um, so they built it in 1917. She's done with it in the 1930s. From the 1970s through, 2000, from 1977 through 2015, it was Thresholds, which is a recovery, an addiction and recovery program. Uh, it was not, I should say, it was not residential from the time she sold it on. It was something else. Then it was Thresholds. Developer bought it. A couple of years ago with the plan uh, or the multiple plans told me at the time, we're either going to we're gonna rehab it and we're either going to resell it as one big house, and you can see just how big that would be, or as three condos. Well, instead, it's now two condos and one on the two upper floors is on the market for uh, just came on the market for a little over 5.6 million. The other isn't done yet and will be on the market for 7.6 or about there. Uh, when it comes on later this spring.
0: And let me ask you, looking at this picture, and for those of you who are listening later, head to chicagobusiness.com and you can check this out for yourself. But looking at this picture, it's kind of an interesting shape. I feel like when we see houses of that age, they tend to be a little more symmetrical and you have this kind of wing coming off the front of it. Is that an addition or is that part of the original?
1: Uh, I think it's part of the original. I'm not sure, but it's, it's an unusual lot. Um, it's an unusual sight, I should say, because again, it goes up Lakeview and then, oh, I'm forgetting, is this wood? This is Wrightwood. Right where it comes off the park, it's diagonal, but then it turns and goes east-west. So there was just this little bit of a jog. Um, and so this ends up, I mean, this looks more like a house in the country yeah. because of that big L shape. So what she gets is this incredible, um, very stately Wrightwood frontage but uh, on what would be the right side of the photo, but the east side of the house, she's looking directly into Lincoln Park.
0: Yeah, it is. it is. You can tell it's kind of a, an angled sort of lot, but she seems to have used the space wisely. I mean, yeah. if that's an addition, it's like a ballroom, right? It's huge, <laughs>
1: right? Uh, yeah, so- the second floor, the first floor of that that. L is a garage now. I don't know what it was originally. The second floor is sort of a ballroom. That would be part of that second condo that isn't on the market yet. And then on the top there, you can kind of see a little penthouse room. Mm-hmm. That is that is a new addition. And then a terrace along the roof of that L um, and all of that is part of this condo that has just come on the market.
0: Interesting. I was guessing ballroom. I'm glad that yeah. I'm right. I'm getting good at this, Dennis. You've shown me so many fancy houses. I can just guess. Ever, by looking yeah, at You and way. I
1: need to time travel back to that era and we'll visit all these grand ballrooms. I'm in.
0: Let, count me in for that for sure. Um, all right. Well, speaking of houses that kind of could be filed under like lifestyles of the rich and famous, but I would add the add kind of the detail of like Lifestyles of the rich and famous who escape to warmer weather, maybe. That's the banner. Um, let's start with a house that Ellen DeGeneres sold to the co-founder of Groupon.
1: Yeah, a house or houses. This yeah. is an estate with something like five buildings on it. I, uh, it's it's a little over nine acres. Ellen DeGeneres and her wife, Portia de Rossi, apparently are very famous for flipping big, fabulous homes in, in the L.A., Southern California area. Uh, and they they do a lot of redecorating. They apparently make them just super stylish. And this is one of those. Uh, it's in Montecito, which is um, a suburb of Santa Barbara, where there are, I mean, it, that's been an estate neighborhood for a century. And so they bought actually two properties, Ellen DeGeneres and Portia de Rossi bought a large and a small property, put them together um, and rehabbed the house. The, the estate is called Salt Hill. I don't know why. Um, it overlooks the ocean. It, there are also views out to the mountains. There's about nine acres. So you also have views of your own acreage. Again, there are about five um, buildings on the property. This is the view from the living room out across the pool to the ocean, which, you know, that, <laughs> that's a nice way to live, looking across sure. your pool at the Pacific Ocean. So they put it on the market uh, in October and in November it sold. And we just learned in January from the LA Press um, that the buyer was the buyers were Eric Lifkofsky Lef- and his wife Liz. Eric was one of the people who built Groupon and is now the chairman. He also has built a, um, a healthcare, artificial intelligence based healthcare startup called Tempus. Um He's a billionaire. Uh, I've written about his other homes. He had they have about fifty million dollars in other homes that I know of. They have a nearly 20 million dollar estate in glencoe 30 uh 33 32 million dollar condo in miami or just outside miami they also have a property in aspen colorado i don't know how much that was so about 50 million on those first two plus x for aspen and now 33 million for santa barbara They're probably pushing $100 million in homes.
0: Well, this is a very gorgeous home, so I can see why it fetched such a dollar. I mean, it's interesting because this reminds me a lot of the conversations we've had about some of the uh, mid-century modern houses that you've written about here. A focus is about bringing natural elements inside and making the scenery around it part of the home and I feel like this has done that so so well I mean that living room obviously you're looking out at the Pacific Ocean and the but the wood is overhead but even here this this um, image of the bathroom you can see kind of this natural rock in there what that's what it looks like anyway but with the mountains in the background so you really feel like you're kind of in that natural uh, you know looking at all the natural elements around you.
1: Well, which, of course, works better in California where you have where you can go outside all year sure. than it does here where you can go outside for about a month and a half. But, um, oh, that must be January talking. Of course, right. we can go outside <laughs> more than a month and a half. Um, but also, I don't know the exact age of the original house on this property, but, yeah, it does have that sort of open indoor yeah. outdoor sort of feeling of of that era. So I'm, I'm guessing, as you are, that it's from uh the middle of the 20th century. Don't know for sure.
0: Yeah, it's really beautiful. I mean, look at that tub. Imagine sitting in that tub and looking out over the mountains. Okay. I can think of worse ways to live for sure.
1: I don't know if you've been to Montecito or Santa Barbara. I was a couple of times when I was young. And um yeah, the mountains and the ocean around there, it's a it's a really fabulous setting. You can imagine so again, so this couple, the Leftkovkis, they have a lakefront estate in Glencoe, and that's wonderful. But it's January, it's gray you get on your plane and you go to this and it's green and beautiful. It's got to feel very different.
0: Look, and if you're a billionaire, you can just have summer all the time. You just kind of keep shifting around and it's fine. Hey, that's, that's what you do. Um, Okay. Let's talk about another house. And that is a, uh, Gold Coast home that is on the market for almost 19 million and that's um, well you tell me about this house and who's behind it
1: well yeah so the sellers of this this is uh, the sellers of this 19 million dollar house on the Gold Coast have already found their new address is what the the current story is we wrote about the house on the Gold Coast a couple of months ago when they listed it and it turned out that right after that though we're just finding out from uh, colleagues in Palm Beach that this couple, Gretchen and Jay Jordan spent $12.7 million on a house in Palm Beach. Uh, So they're asking a little bit more, or they paid a little bit more for this with a pool and palm trees and and that open air. You can, all those windows there sort of are doors that slide open. So you have that indoor-outdoor thing we're talking about. They paid $12.7 million for this in November shortly after listing their house for $18.75 million Uh, On Dearborn on Burton place in the Gold Coast. They have other homes as well. I believe they have a home in New York there he's uh, in Private equity and his company is based in New York But they do have this mansion in Chicago that I think you and I talked about on the podcast. It's pretty remarkable it was a uh, An old historical building that they completely redid and you can hardly tell that that it's not brand-new so not yet having sold on the Gold Coast, mm-hmm. this is what they got on Palm Beach. It's it's a it's a pretty spectacular place for 12.7 million.
0: Yeah. And again, if you if you have the means to avoid winter, that's not a bad place to do it with the palm trees overlooking the pool and, you know, walls that open up to it. Not yeah. too shabby.
1: Palm Beach, of course, is where Mar-a-Lago is. Yeah. And Mar-a-Lago means from the ocean to the lake. Donald Trump's property actually spans it looks like in city blocks, it would be about six blocks from ocean to lake. This house doesn't span the two, but is essentially midway. So you know, get up this morning and I want to go look at the ocean and get up the next morning and I want to go look at the inland uh, waterway. it's a it's a pretty s- special setting,
0: yeah. and and I feel like so much of Florida real estate is about proximity to water. You either yeah. want to be, on the beach or on that intercoastal waterway or how quickly can you get there? I feel like that's the name of the game in Florida real estate listings. And so this is the front of the house that we're looking at now?
1: This is the front, this is a mid-century house. I don't remember the year it was built, but it was lavishly redone by the people who sold it to the Jordans.
0: And I feel like, of course, in Florida, real estate, it's always like a sunset behind it. And yeah. all that. Florida and California is always like just rubbing it in these beautiful sunsets and palm trees. Okay, let's take a look at another house. This is much further away. This is not Florida or California. This is in Australia. That is the Acuna Capital CEO. Tell me about this place.
1: Yeah, well, so it's farther away, but sort of same climate, right? Yeah, We're sort of taking a tour of where people of means are spending their winters. And who knows how much longer, not just winter. It's likely that these people are making, the people with this house are actually making a shift. They are Andrew Killian and his wife, Sandia, as you said, he's the head of a capital firm. They bought this for $23 million in uh, November. They, in 2018, they paid 11.9 million for a a really spectacular house on Burling in Lincoln Park. And what I determined when we learned about this purchase in Australia is that their home in Lincoln Park is not on the market. That doesn't mean, of course, that it won't be on the market any day now or any week now. Um, Nobody would comment to me, uh, but the Australian press was reporting this, uh, this purchase of the one that's on the screen, the $23 million purchase as a homecoming because Andrew Killian, and I believe Sandia Killian um, is an Australian native, came to Chicago in 2011, essentially to start a capital firm because of Chicago being the center of of the trading industries, and now is doing well enough, according to the Australian press, that he's coming home. Now, what we don't know is, is that a full-time homecoming? Certainly we'd get some inkling if they list the house on Burling for sale, Uh, But at the moment, all we know is that they have both this and the house on Burling, which I think we're about to see. No, instead, we're going to see that this pool, like I saw this picture and could not believe it. First of all, the pool sort of steps down the terrace. I think you can only swim in that top level, but you've got sort of a waterfall down to a second level as if you've got, you know, a two story pool. And you can't tell from this photo, but there were some. From that pool, you're looking down the Australian coastline. You're outside Sydney in a suburb, but you're looking to uh, the two structures we know best in Australia, Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Sydney Opera House. Both of those would be tiny little dots in the upper right of this photo, but in other photos, you see that they're looking, I think it's about 30 miles down the coastline, it's less than 30 miles, at those two buildings. So they, you know, it's kind of like getting a buying a house here in Lake Forest and being able to see the Hancock.
0: Sure. Um, I'm so stuck on the two-story pool thing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Once again, I rushed right past that, like, can you believe this pool?
0: So that bottom layer is that, I mean, I, I need scale here. So you can swim in that top layer. The second layer, is that just for, I don't know, Walking, splashing—what is that?
1: Well, I don't know if you can get in it. I, all I, I think it's for overflow, I see. and it's also for visual effect. I think when you're in the house, you see, you know, layers of water. I don't know if if you can actually get in it. Um, my recollection from the other photos is that it's probably only as wide as a person is. Mm-hmm. So if you were in it, you'd just be walking back and forth. But I but I don't remember for sure.
0: Quite a pool. And quite a view while in that pool. Forget that bathtub in California looking at mountains. Let's go to the pool overlooking the Sydney Opera House. These are all, I mean, you can't go wrong with any of these choices, really.
1: Especially on a gray day like today in Chicago. I mean, let's, you know, let's think about the houses in Australia, Santa Barbara, Florida. they People in those houses are having a different day than you and I are.
0: I mean, this, is, this segment has warmed my bones and made me... <laughs> Long for summer sunshine. But I'll say this. One of my favorite things about Chicago is this, is that it is so cold in the winter and so gray that as soon as it is warm, Chicagoans go outside and live like it is our last day on earth. Like there is some serious carpe diem happening all summer long. Heck
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I love swimming in Lake Michigan. I can only do it like from mid-July to the end of August. But um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think Looking at houses like that, like we've just been looking at in the winter, is very different from in the summer. When I, if we were doing this segment then, uh, in July, I'd be saying, Pah, who cares?
0: I don't know that I would be saying who cares over <laughs> a pool overlooking the Sydney Opera House. But it sure. certainly like warms your bones in a different way to look at you it know. in the summer to see that people are warming up on our behalves. What is coming up in the week ahead?
1: Uh, well, so you mentioned uh, year-end data, which we've seen some of. I'm now in that mode where I've got three segments of year-end data. One is how did the whole market do? One is how did everything over a million dollars, luxury homes, do? And the third is how did everything, how did the top 50 sale prices, which are well over a million dollars, they're generally in the four million and up range? And the first of those three stories will be out on Monday. It's about how the luxury market, one million and up. Um, performed. And the first thing I'll say is, it did really well. We sold more million-dollar homes in the Chicago area in 2020 than ever before. There's a lot more in that data, some of it quite surprising, and that story will be out on Monday.
0: Interesting. All right. Well, we will stay tuned for that, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much, Dennis. And of course, thanks to Deputy Digital Editor Sarah Zimmerman, who produces this live stream remotely, and to Wintrust, our sponsor. Coming up, Walgreens is getting into the credit card business. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Chicago Comes Back provides resilient leadership insights to help your business move forward from the pandemic. Delivered on Thursdays, this free e-newsletter features up-to-date information and guidance for Chicago's businesses. Sign up at chicagobusiness.com slash Back.
1: This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth.
0: Aon, an insurance brokerage that's previously been questioned about ties to the Trump organization, said it ended their relationship with the business, that according to an Aon spokesperson. In 2019, Aon got a subpoena from New York's insurance regulator about dealings with the Trump family business. And Aon is just one of the latest financial businesses to cut ties with the president. Earlier this week, professional bank said it won't do more deals with the business, and Signature Bank said it would close Trump accounts, holding about $5.3 million million. Deutsche Bank, to whom Trump owes more than $300 million, is also reportedly ending its relationship with the president on the heels of the insurrection that took place at the Capitol on January 6th. On Wednesday, New York City said it too would end all business with the Trump organization, a move that Eric Trump, the president's son, said the group plans to fight. The PGA of America's board also voted to end an agreement to host next year's championship at a golf course owned by Trump. Boeing has named longtime engineering executive Mike Delaney as its chief aerospace safety officer, adding a new senior management role in the wake of two fatal crashes of the company's 737 MAX jet. With the role, he gains broad control of internal safety measures, as well as a spot on Boeing's executive council. That, according to CEO Dave Calhoun, in a message to workers. The planemaker announced the move less than a week after agreeing to step up its internal safety oversight as part of a $2.5 billion settlement with the U.S. Justice Department. Delaney will take charge of some of the things put in place during the MAX crisis. That includes a safety organization that former CEO Dennis Muhlenberg created to give executives and the board greater visibility into emerging issues as well as any pressure that workers may feel from superiors. Delaney led engineering for Boeing's commercial division from 2010 to 2016, much of the time that the MAX was being developed, and he went on to run the company's plane development unit. Most recently, he spearheaded a Boeing campaign to help travelers feel a sense of safety aboard planes during the COVID-19 pandemic. Ulta Beauty laid off workers at its corporate headquarters and in its field management team this week as it works to reshape itself amid the ongoing pandemic. A spokesperson told Cranes by email that, quote, while incredibly difficult, these decisions were made thoughtfully with a focus on resetting our corporate cost structure to operate more effectively and efficiently in the short term, as well as optimizing our enterprise capabilities to thrive in the long term. She also said that the layoffs impacted roles across all corporate functions of the Bolingbrook-based cosmetics chain, saying they also eliminated open roles, reorganized some teams, expanded certain positions, and, quote, introduced a small number of roles in investment areas. Like many retailers, Ulta has struggled during the pandemic. It closed stores for seven to eight weeks during the stay-home orders last spring, closed 19 stores permanently in the third quarter, and has eliminated jobs. Though Ulta brought back many of its furloughed workers over the summer, retail capacity limits remain in place in Illinois. And cosmetics in particular has been a tricky retail category during the pandemic. However, there are some bright spots, including above-the-mask eye makeup and pampering items like candles and bath products. That, according to executives on Ulta's earnings call last month, at which time they also said that many of the stay-home orders drove traffic online. The company also announced in September that it would halt its planned expansion to Canada, incurring costs of $55 million to $65 million as a result, in order to focus instead on building out U.S. and e-commerce operations. You can find more reporting on this story as well as many others at chicagobusiness.com. Walgreens Boots Alliance plans to introduce new credit cards with Synchrony Financial as well as a separate prepaid debit card. That, according to a statement this week. The new cards will, according to the statement, closely connect with the chain's revamped customer loyalty program called My Walgreens. The program, which has more than 100 million members, already offers customers discounts like 5% back on Walgreens branded items. The credit cards, which are slated to debut in the second half of the year, will offer users other My Walgreens cash rewards, according to the statement. And that's Cranes Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Cranes residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Cranes Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.